Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome again to the Irish Tech News Podcast. I'm again at Double Tech Talks, and uh, guys, introduce yourself, please. Yeah, I'm Stuart McCarthy. I'm a senior product designer at WorkHuman. And I'm Gigi Otanasio. I'm product design manager at WorkHuman. Tell me what your work involved with work came in for a start. So, as a product designer, what we look to do is um, prototype, design, development, essentially understand motivations, issues and problems that a user faces um, when going about using our software. Yeah. Um, we look to do a really in-depth investigation, look at those issues, produce solutions that reflect um, the things that people want to achieve with our products, and then we design software that reflects those ambitions. So those users are other people like me and you, or somebody who's got like issues like sight, or hearing issues, or what kind of issues, or yeah. anybody? <laughs> um, our issues, our, our users are very, very broad. We, yeah. we don't have one particular person who is our user. So we, if you can imagine our user base on, on a bell curve, we have the, the bland 60% in the middle who are regular users, yeah. people who come to the site often, who wouldn't have any f- vulnerabilities or physical disabilities, but you would have other people at the end who come to our site every single day or they're there every single hour, or you'd have people at the other end who are never on our site. But the same is kind of also true for accessibility purposes, where you would have people who are all fully abled people, or you would have other people who express some kind of um, physical limitations. Yeah. And it's incumbent on us as product designers to understand what those disabilities are, whether it's color blindness, whether it's um, using a screen reader for um, people who don't have uh, vision, or it could be people with um, physical limitations who can't use keyboards, for example. Yeah. It's incumbent on us, and frankly, it's incumbent on every other product in the industry to make sure that those people are included when we design software. It's all about inclusivity and embracing yeah. the diversity of our broad user base. So if, if somebody can't use a piece of software, it's because the company has failed in addressing the needs and wants and desires of those users. I guess your product is going to be basically, it's mass produced, so it's not going to be telemetry to each customer, or is it? It's just in terms of the whether or not we tailor our software to other other users. We don't, we don't make software that's tailored. Yeah. We can only make software that is as usable as our most most vulnerable yeah. person who's using it. So it's not, I wouldn't class it as um, dumbing down software yeah. or making it, you know, with massive big buttons. We just have to make sure that those users are fully able to experience the experiences we want in their software. The majority of them, actually. Yeah. But this is, uh, this is the point. We, we design, as a product designers in general, you know, each company, for the majority of users but what, yeah. are, what about people who behave differently and they you know have different needs yeah. and they can really express what they want what they would like to achieve that's that's a thing we need to understand probably we should rethink in general about product design trying to understand how achieving this, this goal you know because yeah. we can't really leave anyone behind yeah it's it, it actually speaks to what we're we're here at Dublin Tech Talks to discuss, which is the role of empathic design. Empathic design essentially means us 
as a designer and also as a company, placing ourselves in the shoes of our vulnerable users yeah. and making sure that um, if we can't physically use software, then how are we expecting other users with any other physical disability to use our software? Yeah. You need to be put in their shoes. Like we do tests and we have some upcoming plans where we are going to be researching within our organization where we just take away people's keyboard and mouse. Yeah. and see how they perform because that's a that's a real physical disability that people feeling what they feel yeah and it's it is about empathetic design and I guess also without it because you've got more touchscreen devices you can you can uh, use that more so instead of a keyboard and you've got more more to play with because you've got a bigger screen yeah it's we, <laughs> that's the other that's the other layer of complexity that we have to design for too which is um, you can have a touch screen interface or you can have the classic mouse yeah. interface but you also have to design for people who could potentially access your software on a yeah. really small mobile device or they could be accessing your software on a on a massive widescreen tv so yeah. there's many many layers of complexities that we have to design yeah. for i'm thinking of for example there uh, if you look at, at, at the old uh, uh, blackberry phones when they had a screen and below that was a keyboard whereas when that came out the whole screen was a keyboard as well so you've got that scenario where where you, you got more more screen to play with. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, but even yeah. if you if you think of Android devices, the fragmentation is huge, and yeah. now this is happening on Apple devices as well. So when you design for these screens, you can't really rely on just one size. So yeah. you have to think of thousand different resolutions and how this will look like on other devices. Yeah, because for me, Apple used to be great because when you got a device. But you first one screen size, then two, then three. Now they've got so many, it's getting like Android. Hey, yeah. it's 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 hard, it's hard to do for them all. Yeah, yeah, and it was an easier job before. <laughs> yeah, when I started designing for mobile apps, there was just the iPhone 3GS and yeah. the iPhone 4. It was a fantastic life yeah. because you just had to produce assets for the two different screens. Yeah, and it was easy. Now, <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen like now you got the. The uh, Max, Max Pro, Plus, yeah. all that, and it's like it, and it, it's getting bigger and bigger. It's really get, uh, getting too big. Yeah. So one of the one of the themes that you mentioned is um, accessibility and yeah. designing for people with physical limitations. But even for regular, if we inverted commas, regular users who don't suffer from accessibility issues, even the physical limitations of the human hand has a has a big impact on yeah. how we should be designing software. So. I'd say a massive majority of people, not to exclude that other minority, would use their mobile phone with one hand. Yeah. So that means interfaces are all shifting downward into a space where users can freely navigate with one hand while you're lying in bed or you're just watching yeah. TV. And you can see that throughout um, some of Apple's new design language where they've been shifting the entire interface down because that's what we call reachability with yeah. the thumb. Um, and if you can't um, empathize with people, and you don't look at how they're actually using your software, you'd never get to a position where, why do I need two hands to yeah. use a mobile phone? It seems... I mean, guess years ago you had wrist strain, now you get thumb strain. <laughs> you get thumb strain, yeah. I mean, we're all guilty of um, getting too much thumb strain by scrolling endless, endlessly through Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat, but um, yeah, it's, inc it's incumbent on us to make sure that we're aware of these situations. We yeah, may not I, yeah, because I can imagine basically years ago now, you wouldn't have thought people would be using small little devices to do that, and I think in ten years' time, where will they be? Yeah, it's I. I literally am not going to predict on a on a recorded. I can just the leap leaps that we've done over the past twenty years. Every, every ten years, something new comes out and changes things. Yes. And as it comes out, like 
first one was a BlackBerry came out and you gave us a proper email on your phone. And then suddenly I, Apple came with iPhone and suddenly that's the next big leap. Now I'm waiting for what's going to happen next. Is it all going to be voice control? It's, it's, uh, it's one of the new frontiers for um, user experience and user interface or product designers where um, a lot of people have predicted that the future interface will be no interface. So yeah. you can see many emerging technologies like um, Google Glass or heads-up displays or autonomous driving vehicles or voice control systems. That yeah. There's so many things that we would potentially have to cater for as both designers and companies that the market becomes a little bit more fragmented until somebody like Apple comes along and standardizes things. Because if done that, over the years, every time someone said, like years ago, when I was looking at video, video calls and phones, yeah. how, it, it, how did it work? And Apple decided, we're going to do it a certain way, FaceTime, and yeah. once they've done that, everybody else stopped the system like that because it worked. And it, it takes someone to come up and have the balls out and say, look, we're going to do it this way. And uh, until something like Apple or Google comes up and does something one way, no one else is going to follow suit. It's, yeah, it's just the, the, the big trick that Apple and, and Google have is they have immediate access to scale. Yeah. Um, I was literally walking down Henry Street um, on Sunday and I seen a guy walking down FaceTiming, I think it must have been his girlfriend or something, yeah. but I literally said to my wife walking down the street, this is almost like the future that we were promised, yeah. where we can just see each other, be walking down the street, communicating, listening with like cordless free earphones while yeah. we communicate and talk with our loved ones. It seems really futuristic if you think about it from even five, ten years ago, where we were just plugging our phones into a wall and picking up the receiver. Yeah, brother, about seven years ago, he moved to London and he was showing my mom <laughs> his new house. He FaceTimed her and he was walking around giving her a review of everything in the That's house. And, and uh, rather than then have to fly over to visit him, we can see it now and look at it and walk around, and that's something we couldn't do. Well, if you think of voice um, interfaces, it's not working as expected, according to sci-fi movies, yeah. Star Trek, yeah. and it's not working. Probably we are too behind. Probably the technology is not ready yet. And, and have another think about um, the accessibility of a, a voice control system. Not everybody has a voice. No. And that's something that we also have to cater for it. If you have a car that relies solely on your voice and people don't have a voice, but that's the only physical limitation. Or they have action to car here, like you ever seen the sketch with this with the Scottish lift? I don't think so. Well there's 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 two Scottish cars in the lift and lift uh, is asking them where they want to go. Doesn't get their accents because they're from Glasgow. Because they're from Glasgow, yes. And they're gonna and then after trying to okay well we'll change accents and go we'll go British Lenin please and doesn't get any doesn't understand what they're saying. But it's not used to that. Exactly, yeah. That's You're going to get a scenario. Yeah. Or something like from Kerry, Mega Healy, Ray, for example. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, they have to change it and, and adapt it, and eventually it will do that. But the moment technology isn't there yet, but I think in 20 years' time it will be there. Yeah, I think, I think um, a, major, a major trend that we see in, in technology is the, the advanced personalization that we can see in, in the products that we're are being sold to us essentially yeah. and you can see it with um, like one of the main reasons why Facebook is what it is or Instagram is what it is is because of this algorithmic feed yeah. and that literally is driving people to consume content because the algorithm is dictating or predicting that this is something that they'll want to see yeah. and I think that further personalization and tailoring of content is something that we'll even see potentially into the physical world yeah and I guess in one way it's it's good and bad. The bad way is it can be used to manipulate your thoughts. Sure. And also, if it sees what you're actually thinking, it might predict. 
I might try and change their personality so that you would type certain things and you know, do act a certain way. Yeah. But now the discovery is based on algorithm. Think of YouTube, yeah. where actually creators, they, they have to change the way they make their content yeah. according to the algorithm so they don't follow what really users might like yeah. or what Google, what YouTube likes. Yeah. That's a bit... Uh, it is, I think when Google is telling creator, you got to create things a certain way. Surely it should be what the viewer wants and rather than what Google wants. But Google wants a certain way because they want to follow, you follow their template. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that's having a real impact on YouTube creators or it's even um, coming into the realms of social media where Big Brother, essentially, these big tech corporations like um, Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, even though they're the same thing, who are changing and surfacing content based on inherent um, click patterns their users have and that's in turn driving other creators to change what they've actually created so yeah. um, not to be political but you can see users in Instagram not mentioning Hong Kong for example because yeah. their content is being downgraded or you can see the, the latest controversy with the, the application TikTok who has very um, severe censorship that happens in their Chinese market but yeah. they applied that same censorship to their North American and European markets to a lot of backlash yeah. and they've again changed their policy where they can um, users in outside of these geo-restricted locations are able to create content again based on what they've wanted but you can see that the the overarching policies are having a direct impact on how people create content and that in turn will dictate how people consume content. Yeah, and also I guess basically it makes the thing differently because you're not thinking what you normally would think. Yeah, it's, it's, you can see it in the, the Russian interference potentially in the American elections or the Russian interference in the, the Brexit vote or yeah. um, any other kind of digital interference is fundamentally changing the not the hive mind, but the communal mind of yeah. certain certain demographics and certain countries. And I guess so, if you were to like Instagram or YouTube or Facebook, sure. what you would see on there is what they deem you should be watching. So they might suddenly decide, oh, because let's come to come soon in the UK and they're going to focus on one certain area and be pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit because yeah. they've been paid to do that. So, by someone known for us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that we've seen throughout history <laughs> um, it's let's let's look at who owns television stations or who controls some of the yeah. radio stations in Ireland or who are the the big um, newspaper distributors in Ireland it's yeah. something that has persisted throughout media um, with every single wave of new technology and I don't think it's going to stop but we just need to start considering who is driving what content and why eyes are getting placed like it. there's a moment I've got on my on my laptop that tells me, uh, it goes through all different media objects online and tells me what I shouldn't be watching and it, what I shouldn't be, be, be looking at. Yeah. And it rates Wikipedia harder than Daily Mail. What? <laughs> and that says something. Yeah. It says, you can't trust Daily Mail because of, of the content that they're putting on there. And a lot of it is because they're the biggest website online and what they do is they're promoting a lot of stupid content. Like, there's Kardashian going out with a daughter or mm -hmm. something, or in a bikini or having a do something stupid we don't know about. And yet, when, when, when uh, we look at Wikipedia, Wikipedia is actually, uh, at times you can edit what's on there. Sure. But when, it's scary when, they, when they, they say that's more factual than a newspaper that's been yeah. read for years. It's, it's almost like you're crowdsourcing facts on Wikipedia, whereas 
on the Mail Online. It's it's the the purview of what somebody wants to feed. Yeah, and it's I guess I want some Wikipedia so you put in a pack any. Pakeni eats babies. <laughs> now that wasn't true, but back you can go and edit that. Yes. That's when he said, well, if they can do that and that, then how can, how can they still trust it more than the Daily Mail online? Yeah. It's kind of strange how they can... Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's scary and um, fascinating. All yeah, and I guess on, on, on that, that scary thought, let the, the listeners to ponder that. <laughs> yeah. And thanks so much for that, guys. Thank you so much.